Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. I never weary of hearing the testimonies of great Christians and especially missionaries, the stories of their conversion and how the Lord directed them to Christian service in a foreign land seems to always stir my heart about the grace and power of God. Today's interview is no different. Missionary to Mexico, Mitchell Muller didn't grow up in church. He didn't come from a tradition of mission service. He didn't even get saved in a Baptist church. But God sought him nonetheless and got him to the Yucatan Peninsula to plant churches. I think you'll enjoy the story as I did. As we talk about foreign missions, there are some themes that come up again and again without orchestration. You'll hear some of these in today's interview. One of those is the importance of language learning, and Brother Muller relates a testimony that powerfully illustrates the importance of language acquisition on a foreign mission field. Thank you for tuning in. Now for my conversation with Brother Mitchell Muller. Well, Brother Muller, you've been you've been back there in Mexico since 2019 after spending a few years stateside. And I uh, later in the conversation, I want to talk to you a little bit about what brought you back to the States and how you got back to Mexico. But before that, you spent 15 years planting churches in the Yucatan from 1999 to 2014. And I want to talk to you about the about the field of Yucatan and and uh, and planting churches there. But probably we should start with finding out how you got saved. So tell us okay. a little bit about how sure. you came to know the Lord and sure. how the Lord got you to Mexico back in 1999. All right. Well, that's two separate issues, but let's deal sure. with the first one. Well, my wife and I, um, this was in 89 when my son was born and the Lord used his birth in a great way. We... You know, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but my wife and I, we uh, we don't come from the a wholesome background. I'll just say that. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we we were involved in a lot of bad stuff, drugs and things like that. And uh, about the time, a few months before my wife gave birth to Richard, our first son, our only son, um, her sister encouraged us to listen to a radio station, a Christian radio station. And we began listening to that. And through that, we heard the gospel. And uh, it was in November of 1989 when, you know, came to the realization that for me, the realization wasn't, uh, you know, bow my head and say a sinner's prayer type thing. It was uh, it was more of a realization that God existed. He was real. Yeah. Uh, and that realization really uh, infused my, my entire spirit and being with a great dread <laughs> because of wow. my lifestyle, you know? And so it didn't have this cathartic, uh, like a catharsis type thing. It was just, I was very fearful. And I remember the actual day that, uh, my son was born and, and they put that, uh, my, my wife had a C-section and they put Richard in my hands. And, you know, we walked in the next little ante room there to, weigh him and measure him and take his footprints and all that kind of stuff. And it just, it just hit me. I mean, the whole thing just came on me like a ton of rocks. And I just, uh, I was under the impression that God finally just revealed himself to me so that he wow. just put my soul in hell where it deserved. And uh, I remember just crying out to the Lord that night and basically just a cry of, 
of despair and a cry of, I'm undone. And if you'll just save me. And he did. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I mean, so to, to, to us, that was my experience, you know, and, and my wife was saved soon after, and we were listening to this radio station and that kind of what planted the seed. And, uh, there was no, oh, glorious moment, you know, like, oh, now I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. There was first a moment that I'm really under the wrath of God. And I really felt that as, as a reality. And that's what caused me to turn to him and cry out to him. And, you know, on that radio station, there was a, uh, a guy and he always uh, would listen to him. And uh, I kind of liked just the way he talked and things. And he would say, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, that will not despise. And quote that frequently because, you know, the, the programming was Calvinistic. And so he didn't have a, an invitation per se. You understand? And folks would call and say, well, what must I do to be saved? And and he would give that spiel of Calvinism and, you know, you're elect and this and that. And it's not for us to decide. And you can't just... But he would say, you know, uh, who can tell? <laughs> Maybe God will save you. Cry out unto him. Cry out unto him. A broken and a contrite heart that will not despise. Now, at the time, I didn't understand the nuances of the false doctrine of Calvinism, things like that. But I did that. I cried out unto the Lord and, and he saved my soul. And, amen. Amen. So that's that's how we, we got saved. And we were uh and right at that same time, a, a, a little Nazarene church was starting up in our little town. And they came around door knocking, inviting folks. And we started going there. They were meeting in the junior high school gym. And we started going there. And it's interesting because there was a couple there, an older couple. And uh, this brother, his name is Chuck Vansel. And he took an interest in us. And apparently his background was independent Baptist. And for whatever reasons, I really don't know all the details. He had uh, left disgruntled in a church split or something like that. And and, uh, and then with that uh, new congregation where he was attending, I guess things didn't go as he thought they might. And I don't think he was a, uh, one of the, the motivators of the split. He just went along with it. But he was in this Nazarene church just because he's trying to go to church faithful. He and his wife, Goldie. And after a few months of us attending there, we would go in there and we'd set up all the chairs and all that. And uh, he came over to my house and he said, you know, I just feel the Lord's going to use you, Mitchell. And I said, okay. I didn't know what all that meant. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I mean, we're just little babes in Christ and didn't know nothing. And uh, trying to figure some things out. And he says, I want to take you to a church this Sunday because you're never going to learn anything in this Nazarene church. <laughs> I said, all right. And he came by and I remember that Sunday clear. Uh, my wife and I, we were, we were fighting and having a, having a time of it. And uh, he came and he came to the door and I said, we're not going. And he said, oh yes, you are. And he came in the house. I mean, he was insistent. Amen. And he took us to an independent Baptist church where he had been a part of this group that left another church. And you know, in, in the movies, you know, um, you know, Black Bart walks into the room and the whole saloon just shuts down quiet, right? That's how it was when we walked in there. With him. <laughs> I'll never forget it because they were like just shocked to see him. But later on, I understood, you know, this man humbled himself and went back to a group that he had, had not been in agreement with. And uh, 
was in there and we sat there and this fella, it was night and day between this Nazarene church and this fella preaching. And I remember I went forward that day and he said, what do you, what can I do for you? You need to be saved. And I said, no, I know I'm saved. I just, I just need to do something for God. And he said, good. And then, you know, it wasn't long before we moved up to the Seattle area, but I remember asking him, what, what do we need to find up there in Seattle? And, uh, cause they were meeting in a little daycare center. It was just a little thing going and, and, but it was just the, the difference that we saw. And so when we moved up to Seattle, we found an independent Baptist church and that's where we sat and grew and, and began serving the Lord and growing in grace and truth there. So that's sort of the, the, the synopsis of how we got saved and, and how we got into the independent Baptist church. That's a, that's a powerful story, brother Mitch. Uh, I, you know, the, the birth of my oldest son, brother Mitch, uh, completely changed my life. And it is the event that led to eventually my, my wife's conversion. So I can, oh, relate amen. And, you know, we've covered the subject on this podcast before of the role of radio in missions. And oh, it's really yeah. interesting that the Lord has used that in the way that he did to, uh, to, to get your attention. And even though there, even though there were some doctrinal flaws, uh, it, God used it because there was somebody out there that was looking for truth. Well, that's and, it. And, 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 that, and, and a little bit of light turned into a lot of light because exactly. you ended up in a Nazarene church and a, and, <laughs> and a Bible-believing Christian, Bible Christian encountered you and, yes. and introduced yes. more truth. What a, Isn't what that a something? It's sort of like uh, the disciples of, of uh, John the Baptist. They were with a little light. He said, I'm not that light. But uh, when the light of the world came, they left him and went. And, you know, if you're you're in the light, I believe the Lord will give you more light if you're looking for it. So, yeah, you know, it's a, I, I look back and I'm just so thankful for Brother Chuck. And, uh, you know, he and I had nothing. He was much older than I was, a retired engineer. And me, I was a roofer, just construction guy. And we had nothing in common outside of Christ. But the Lord used that man uh, to encourage me to, to, to move away from that Nazarene church. And, and, uh, and that's what, what started our journey on on being used to the Lord. It was a blessing. Yeah. Amen. And so you guys ended up in the open door Baptist church. Yes. Eventually in the Seattle yes. Area. In, in Linwood. We, uh, cause when we left, uh, uh, the pastor there was named Ken, where we were first started going in that daycare center. And I asked him, I'm going to move to Seattle cause it was already sort of in motion. We were already on the, our way moving out of this area and, and, uh, going up to live with my, uh, near my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law. And I asked him, what, what should I look for? Do you know anybody up there? And he said, no, he didn't. But just, he said, just, just find you, make sure they're independent and make sure they're King James Bible. Both of those designations meant nothing to me. You know, <laughs> you gotta understand. I mean, I didn't know anything about Bible issues or Southern Baptist in the, you know, it didn't, it, it, not that it didn't make any difference. I just had no understanding of these issues. And, and we very, very new in the faith. And so we drove up to Seattle and uh, we got there in the dead of winter and it was snow all over. And I remember, cause we're from Southern California. And I said, Oh, don't even get out. I'm not staying here <laughs> for that snow all over the floor. And, and uh, we were driving around getting the lay of the land and I saw open door Baptist church and it was just a few miles from our house. And so, I mean, you got to picture a guy who's got hair down to his belt loop and a big old beard and just a sort of biker 
guy. I mean, that's that was our background. That's the kind of uh, lifestyle we had. And uh, I pulled into their parking lot and went up into their office. And uh, uh, the pastor's wife was secretary, then Mrs. Blue. And she had a little sliding window there from the foyer to her office. And I tapped on that window. And, I, and this is a story they've embellished over the years up there because it makes <laughs> Makes good preaching, you know, but, and here's this big biker guy standing there and taps on her window and she opens it about a half inch, you know, <laughs> and she says, uh, can I help you? And uh, I'll never forget the look on her face. Cause I said, I'm looking for an independent Baptist church that believes the King James Bible. <laughs> Cause that's what the other pastor told me to ask for. Yeah. Uh, and she said, well, we're independent and we're King James Bible. And I said, do you have your articles of faith? And, and she was just puzzled. I mean, <laughs> because it was like if you opened up a box of cornflakes and Fruit Loops came out. I mean, you know, it was not what you were expecting. And so she gave it to me, a little booklet. And we went back, I went back down into the parking lot where Liz was waiting. And we started going through that and opened it and finally got to a place where it says the scriptures and and it said, you know, the scriptures are this and that and all these other things. And we believe that's found in the King James Bible. I said, well, there you go. And that's when we started going. That was it. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I guess Brother Blue not only helped to disciple you in the faith, he helped to put missions into your heart over the next few years. Well, he sure did. He did. He uh, he took me to India. And so when we started going to Open Door, it was 1990. Yeah, it was the end of 1990. So we'd been saved. We'd been saved about a year. And uh, and a couple of years going there, he said, I'm going to go to India, Brother Muller. You want to come with me? And I said, yeah. And uh, I went with him, and that was in 94. We went to, went to India. And that just really, really, uh, it just changed my perspective of my relationship with the Lord in so many different ways on so many different levels that uh, I came back home and I remember telling him, I just want to go back to India and be a missionary. But in 94, India was a closed country in that sense. Uh, you couldn't get those kind of visas. Now, I think you can now, but in those days you really couldn't. And our host there was a, an Indian national pastor who's, you know, just one of those a ministries that's almost apostolic in nature. It's he's planted a hundred churches, you know, he's trained a you know 50, 60 men. It's just an extremely uh successful uh spiritually speaking uh network of, of work that the Lord has used this man to to do. And and I remember talking with Brother Joseph and uh and he said, you know, India doesn't need any Americans over here. <laughs> wow. he said you ought to pray and, and have the lord send you somewhere where they need you you know we need resources and that kind of help but we got enough people here we got a billion people over here he told me and uh and you know what I, I remember at first i was a little a little i don't know miffed by that right and here yeah. you're thinking you're you're gonna go and offer your services and it's and you felt I felt a little bit of rejection, but you know, it, uh, Pastor Blue helped me put all that into perspective. And so, uh, you know, we just stayed at home and, and kept serving the Lord and waiting on him to, to lead us into a, in a direction that we knew was sure. How did Mexico eventually come into oh, view? Well, uh, 
few years later, I was in the Bible Institute. Pastor Blue had started a Bible Institute, and it was just, just a handful of us. It wasn't many of us. And we were taking those classes, and and uh, the youth pastor uh, took a group to a baseball game to see the Seattle Mariners. And my wife went because my son, uh, he wasn't a youth, but he was invited to go along. And he was about eight or nine, I think. And uh, and so he went and Liz went sort of like a chaperone type role. And while they were sitting there, uh, Pastor Kelly said, uh, you know, we're going to Mexico again. They went every year down to the Bearing Precious Seed uh, ministry that was based in El Paso, Texas. And then they would take a a couple of buses and take an overnight trip down into Chihuahua somewhere. And they had those things established for many, many years. Carlos Demarest was the uh, director in those days. And he was out of Charles Keene's church over there in Ohio. uh, So I wound up going uh, with the youth, with Liz, and uh, we went down there. That was, I think, in 95 or 96 or so. We went down there and, and, uh, to Mexico, and we had uh, just a an eye-opening experience. You know, my wife's background is Hispanic. Her mother's born in Mexico and grew up in Mexico and didn't come to the States till she was a, a teenager. Mm. And, uh, and actually, on that trip, my mother-in-law accompanied us. And uh, through her translation, we were able to win several people to the Lord. And Amen. And I said, I'm certain this is where the Lord will have me. In fact, Brother Lee, there was a there was a little girl that it, it had brained, and we were in this little they call them ranchitos, a little village, and uh, and she was over by a big mud puddle and had a stick, and she was smacking that mud puddle. I was just looking at her and how the Lord spoke to me in such a a real way. Really looking at that young lady, she's probably about seven or eight years old. And uh, just, you know, the Lord began to, to show me that her life going to grow up in this little village, and probably marry and uh, probably marry a guy that gets drunk now and then and might even mistreat her a little bit. And uh, she's going to try to do her best and raise her children and Catholicism. And then after all that life, which wouldn't wouldn't be that pleasing, it wouldn't be that good of a life. She's going to die and go to hell. And brother it just broke me. It just broke me. I took a picture of her. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it. I, I still have the picture. I still have the picture of her. And the Lord really used that. And now at the same time, my wife was on the other side of that little village. And she's with her mom and she's talking to this lady. And so I think right around the same time, the Lord just smote us both in the heart. And she's talking to a lady and uh, the lady says, you know, I've seen groups like you come down here before. And she wasn't mean spirited about it. She was just saying, you know, we have this Catholic church, of course, and, and the Jehovah's Witness, because they come down here and they build their little shop. And, and then the, uh, you know, Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons and got every kind of, you know, ism down here. And they all set up shop and they, they talk to people. And yet here you guys come. And you're, 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 you have the truth and you kick up some dust and make a fuss and then you leave and never come back. Wow. That just really broke my wife. And so I remember when we went back, uh, we went back to uh, Mexico. 
I mean, just, I'm sorry, went back to our, our church and we were just so quiet, you know, because we were both just reflecting on these things and then we shared them with each other. And so uh, it was right then, it was a, a missions conference in our church uh, right when we got back. And uh, there was a fellow there. I don't even remember what he was preaching, Brother Lee. <laughs> didn't matter, did I it? Just, <laughs> no, I just went forward and and passed, yeah. came down the steps a little bit, and he said, well, "What are you gonna What are you gonna do, brother?" I said, "I'm just gonna go with that guy." You know, <laughs> he needs some help. I'm gonna go with him, and and then Pastor Blue just sort of stopped the service, and I'm, I'll never forget. He just put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, "Let's all just pray for Brother Muller right now." Amen. Yep. <laughs> we'll see what the Lord does with him. And so, yeah, I mean, that was around 95. And then, you know, I went to the Bible Institute and put four years into five. And and during that time, I went back to India, I took some other trips. But that, that thing in Mexico really, really moved us. And Amen. yeah, and then I felt very decided that that's where we're going to go. We're going to go to Mexico. We didn't really know when, but uh, <laughs> and we didn't really know where. But uh, that's that's a little more of it. How we got uh, to Mexico that that trip that the youth group took. We went on a missions trip. I'd encourage anybody listening to this podcast if your church takes a missions trip, do everything you can to go with them, brother. That is a, that's a topic that that comes up it seems like it comes up pretty regularly on this program, the value of short-term mission trips in terms of just growing your burden and getting some exposure that might just change your life. And of course, those short-term trips, brother, they not only, they not only help to stir people up to go and serve, but they also inform people to give and to pray. Absolutely. There's just so many spiritual benefits that'll be added to your life. Brother Muller, you you actually ended up. I think that probably a lot of Americans their their exposure to we share such a lengthy border uh, between the U.S. and Mexico that I think a lot of conceptions that we have about Mexico are are from along that border or maybe something that we read or heard about the huge the mega city Mexico City. But you guys actually ended up in Yucatan. And apart from apart from, you know, some tourist spots like Cancun and Cozumel, which are, you know, they're on the map for for tourists, the Yucatan's uh, uh, it's a quite a bit different than, I guess, perhaps other places in Mexico. So how would you characterize the people, the people and the culture in the part of Mexico where where sure. you got landed? Well, the, the Yucatan Peninsula is a is a three state Area is comprised of three states. You have the state of Yucatan, and you have the state of Quintana Roo, which is where Cancun is, and and Cozumel that you just mentioned, and then there's the state of Campeche. And uh, you know, you you hit it right on the head. There's a few tourist spots that people come to, and but other than that, the Yucatan Peninsula is very rural. I would say there's three main cities. Each state has their capital city. And uh, probably the entire peninsula might have between 10 and 12 million people in three states. So you're looking at a rural area that's very agricultural and uh, and outside of the cities, you know, that's it's just little villages. So you have of, of these, let's just say 10 million and uh, probably 
less than 4 million of them live in a, in a city, like you and I think of a city. But six or seven million live out in little villages. And so the main population live in these villages. And what you have in the Yucatan Peninsula is a culture that is indigenous. Uh, it's the Mayan Indian descendants are here. And there's probably probably a good 30 to 35% of them speak the, the, the dialect. And so you're surrounded by this. It's a, and it, it's a very different culture because it's so rural and agricultural in nature. I mean, here we have hundreds of acres of sugar cane and, and things. Now, not right where I live. I live in one of these big cities, but I'm surrounded by these villages and we have a work in a village and our, our goal is to expand those works and continue working in those villages as well because it's, it's part of your life here. It's part of what happens. So you have the Mayan culture, which is a agricultural culture, the languages here. And so things here, as opposed to the northern part of Mexico, um, we speak slower. <laughs> our our dialect is, is more sing-song. Um, nobody's in a hurry here. Uh, things just are on village time. You know, you, it's very rural. And so you have a, a culture here that's... Uh, that's that's just more uh um, you know i haven't spent a lot of time up in the north but i know when people come here they're, they're they're always noting that no one's in a hurry here um you still have a lot of old school mexico here um the the vendors come up and down your streets in these little you know what a triciclo is it's a it's a bike it's a bike with a big front two wheels on it and it has a cage on it so you know the guy you know tortillas come down your street you don't have to go to the store to get them um ice cream man comes down your street you don't have to go to the store and get it the gas man with the propane tanks comes down your street everything comes to you because it's still just that old school way and, uh, and so the people are, are a little more humble they're a little more uh the word humble in, in our dialect here and our understanding is a little bit more poor, not as educated. Um, you know, so the, the cultural distinctions are, are, are big. So we're working within a subculture, uh, within a culture. And uh, so to reach the, the villages is where our heart is, because we come from a rural area as well. We grew up in a, in a, in a town outside of San Diego, but... Um, to be able to relate to those people, you're going to have to go out there and it takes a while because it's very clannish, you know, and, and you, you got to win someone over and not just win them to the Lord. You got to win them over <laughs> and, and make them your ally. And so, yeah, those are the distinctions. It's very different here. The, the language is different. The Spanish is, uh, is, is a little more slower and a little more sing song, but, other than that, the, the people just have a, a, a lifestyle. I think that the, I'll give you an example. When we first moved um, to that village, we lived out in a village for two years, you know, no phone, no internet. They didn't even have it in the, in the, in the village at all. And uh, I remember I wanted to, to hire somebody 
to make a, a, a concrete slab outside of the back of my little house I was renting because the jungle just comes and eats. It's very, very tropical here. And I was constantly battling that, that, that growth. <laughs> I mean, a couple of weeks go by, turn your back on it. It was all up to your house, you know? And so I try to get one of the church guys come over and yeah, he'll come over and he came over and he looked at it and said, yeah, we need this much cement and this much gravel and la la la. And he gave me the little list of things I need. And then I went and got all that stuff and it just sat there for a week. And then I, see him in church and I'd say, Hey, you know, and he'd say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to come. And then it sat there for another week. <laughs> After, you know, a couple of weeks of this, I go, you know, cause as an American, you're like, well, when's he going to come and do this? Right. And, uh, go over to his house and he's just laying in his hammock. <laughs> and I said, you know, are you going to come and make that little floor for me back there? And he kind of looked up and he said, well, basically it was, Telling me, you know, I've, I've got some tortillas and I've got some beans. And so I really don't need anything right now. <laughs> so when I'm when I'm in need of a of a of a go back and buy some more, you know, goods from the store, I'll be over to do that because then I'll get a couple bucks from you, you know, and, you know, and in those times when we first got here, that kind of stuff was very frustrating to us. Now, that's not typical in Mexico. You know, and, and a Mexican's not afraid to work. I don't want you want your listeners to get the wrong impression because they're, uh, uh, you know, they're they're very they're very uh, eager to 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 work. In fact, you go to the Home Depot and you don't see any white Anglo Caucasians homeless standing around there. It's all Mexicans looking for work. You know, so. <laughs> but anyway, it's just uh, you know, I'm I'm they're they're a little more satisfied in life here, and so that our evangelism efforts a little different because you're trying to talk to somebody and say, Hey, you have this great need. And, uh, they, it's, it's a little different trying to get them to see that need because they don't see themselves as, as that needy because their contentment. You understand? Yeah. 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 That is, that's helpful. Uh, trying to understand the, the, the culture there. So I guess that, uh, that first, those first couple of years in the, in the village were uh, pretty critical to your language learning and your, your acquisition and, and acclimation. So, but after that, you, you guys got down to business of planting churches. The Lord's allowed you to plant churches in all three of the States there. Yes. Yes, we have. By God's grace, we've been able to plant several churches here. Yeah. And I guess the first one was Calvary, right? In Chetamal. Well, our first solo effort was Calvary Baptist church. Now, okay. lived in the village, um, you know, we worked underneath the national pastor, Victor, there. And uh, Pastor Victor, and he assigned us to a village with a couple of young men. And so we were we were a part of two church plants, but they weren't they weren't independent from Victor. And so started two works in two different villages out there. And uh, in fact, one of them uh, just just uh, celebrated uh, their 21 year anniversary. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And, uh, the pastor theirs was, uh, the young man that, that I used to just walk behind and work with, you know, he, he was the, he was the guy. Amen. <laughs> Let me ask you about that. I do that. Uh, that's interesting. You, you yeah. spent those first two years working under a national pastor there and, yes, and sir. 
do you would you suggest that that's advisable in terms of getting adapting to that culture and learning how things are done? I'm I'm hesitant to say what I did is what others should do because yeah. you know the Lord has His own path for for everybody. I mean, the Lord's going to lead people. Now, I think there was a lot of advantages to uh, working under a national, but I don't know if that's for everyone. It seems like that might. It, it seems like that might be pretty helpful in sort of stripping some of the Americanism that we take with us. We learned uh, a, 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 just a, a wealth of information from Pastor Victor on, on how to work. I just emulated his models from then on and in a great way. I still do. Now, there were some we butted heads a few times because as, as an American, it's difficult for us. And I'll tell you. You know, just my observations, we we tend to be know-it-alls. And if we're not careful, yeah. <laughs> if we're not careful, you're going to go into a man's work, you know, and you're going to run the risk of, of you know, intimating or insinuating that he's not doing things right. And uh, we had a couple of conflicts like that with him. And I learned through that, you know, that uh, you don't know everything. But we did uh, decide to work under a national. And I think it was really advantageous. And now these 20 some years later, um, because of our experience there, I think that there's a readily notable difference when we approach people that we are a lot more uh, homegrown here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, and it's been, and, and, and the Lord has used that to our advantage. We got to a small village and I can speak a, a, a lot of Mayan and so that's just really uh, helpful because you're breaking this cultural barrier because they don't know any, let alone a white guy that speaks Spanish, but an American guy that, that can converse a little bit of Mayan with them. That's just, it's just kind of takes them, it, it just takes down their defenses, you know. Working under the national, we learned, uh, I learned, my wife already spoke Spanish and really she didn't like to speak it that well, but she grew up in a Spanish speaking home. So Victor would come and he would say, blah, 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 blah. And I would just have no idea what he was talking about. And then uh, Liz would look at me and say, he wants you to go do this and that and this with him. And I'd say, oh, okay. And I'd go, you know, <laughs> but there was a, you know, you would think that, <clears throat> you know, some people may need the structure of a language school. I just learned sitting in the village, I would go down to the hardware store because I was trying to hang some shelves or something. And I would uh, try to look up the word in a dictionary. I need these shelf hangers and I need some screws and everything's made out of concrete. So I need a, a little wall insert, you know, because there's there's no studs, you know. And and I'd go down to the, the, the hardware store and, and I'd say a word and he would kind of look at me puzzled. And after a while, uh, that fella just took me in the back and he would hold up a, a nail, for example, and he would say, clavo. And then he <laughs> motioned to me for me to say it. And so, yeah. you know, the village people sort of adopted us because we were very unique in their village. We were the only white people in that village. There was no other Americans there. And so, you know, um, people just took an interest in us. They wanted to know why we were there. They knew we were associated with Pastor Victor. But that still piqued their interest quite a bit. And so they would, I would sit in the park in the El Centro down in the middle of town and just try to talk to people and try to talk to people. I'll give you an example of what 
that kind of uh, being inserted into their culture that way, the benefits it gave us. There's a fella named Erasmus who, um, <clears throat> he's very old now, but um, he has a taco stand there and he was in the shadow of the Catholic church. Every village has the same structure. There's a Catholic church in the center of town. There's a little park in front of it. And there's a little uh, circle of businesses that are down there. And that's, that's every, every village has this and, and there's no difference. And, uh, you know, I'd go and buy his tacos cause they were really good. And after I was there about a year, Erasmus asked me one day, he says, uh, so what are you doing here anyway? And, and I, I was, oh, so, so I was, I spoke like a little child, you know, it takes a couple of years to learn a, a foreign language, no matter how smart you are. It takes about two years to become conversational. So I'm into it about a year and I'm able to understand some things and I'm able to say some things, but it wasn't always right. But, you know, they had, they, they could understand my broken Spanish. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So he asked me why I'm there. And I said, well, I come down here to learn Spanish. And he says, well, why do you want to learn Spanish? And I said, well, so that I can tell you that Jesus loves you and he died for your sins and that you could, you could be saved and go to heaven when you die. And, you know, his reaction was, was, uh, was, was incredible. He, he actually began to cry. Wow. Uh, yeah. And he began to tell me that they had a, because they're just a village, the Catholic priest is like a circuit preacher in that sense. He, he takes care of several Catholic churches all at the same time because they're just so small. And, uh, you know, they're just small little villages. So he'll ride, he'll travel around. And he's a circuit priest. And he says, this priest we have, he's from Germany. And, uh, and he gives the mass in Latin. And uh, he never wants to speak to us in Spanish. And he said, I don't even think the guy speaks Spanish very well. And here you are, some guy from some other religion, and has enough desire to come and speak to me about your religion, that you're willing to forsake your life in America and come down here and live in this little village to learn Spanish so you can speak to me. And he got saved. Yeah. Amen. And, you know, from for 20 years, I've been eating tacos at his at his stand <laughs> <laughs> whenever I visit out there. And, you know, my money's no good there. Yeah. And it's strange because I, not strange, but the folks that are sitting there eating his tacos, you know, he stops what he's doing. He comes and gives me a big hug and he says, hermano, which is brother. And and now he never came to our church or anything like that, but he never forgot. Kind of like with the short-term mission trips that came up earlier, the the whole issue of language acquisition and and the relationship that that has to cultural adaptation. And if you're going to really reach people and you're going to reach them effectively, doing it in their heart language is is really critical. That's a that's a powerful. Oh, it's, story. it's a must, you know. And and for any anybody you know that might be listening at some time. Um, I'll tell you, this is the advice I give to every missionary I've had a chance to talk to in missions conferences, some of them just on deputation. You know, your job, brother, as a missionary, just going to the field, your job, your initial job is to learn the language. There's no way you can be effective until you learn the language. And you may be able to work alongside a national, but you, you, you can't depend on him your job is to learn the language, which will in turn immerse you in their culture. 
And so some guys go down and and uh, they're going to work with a, another missionary in the area. And, and that's well and good. But just make sure that you, his ministry does not become your ministry. You're there because God called you there. And your primary responsibility is to learn the language. And so you need to attack that as though it's your day job and spend every day trying to learn some more about the language. And if that means not going and helping that American missionary for an afternoon, so be it. Your job and your priority has to be the language. Then once you can effectively communicate, uh, you'll be able to effectively help people. Because unless you can help them, what are you doing? It's important. The language is important. And if there is a dialect, I'll, I'll, I'll extend this idea of communicating to the dialects. If you live, if you're called to a place like like India, which has, you know, 100 languages, if you're called to Papua New Guinea, which has probably about 45 different dialects over there or more, or the Philippines has several dialects, you know, I, I would include those dialects. Uh, you need to try to, I don't know if you need to master them, but I'll tell you what, if, if you can just string a couple of sentences together, uh, just simple things. Hello, how are you? My name is. Uh, I'm telling you what, you, you just be blown away by the doors that will open for you. If you can say some things in a, in a man's dialect, you know, I mean, not just the, the, the general language of the, of the area. For me to speak Spanish is one thing. And, you know, uh, that's not unique. And man, there's a lot of Americans that speak Spanish. <laughs> there's a lot of them here in this city that speak Spanish. But to be able to say something in Mayan uh, to some of these people, it's just it just really changes the entire dynamic of your of your community, your 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 inner interaction with them. So I would encourage you to to try to spend a little time learning some of that stuff as well. I think that's a good place for us to wrap up the first part of this two-part interview with Brother Muller. Brothers and sisters, I say this with respect to Brother Muller, but much more so with respect to Brother Muller's God. If the Lord can save Mitchell and Elizabeth Muller out of the lifestyle they were in, using the radio program that he did, and then take the Mullers from a Nazarene church to a Bible-believing Baptist church, and from the roofing business to the foreign field, ministering the gospel and planting churches in a foreign tongue, Perhaps there's some hope that God can do something through you and I with our lost and undone friends, family, and acquaintances. Thanks again for tuning in. I trust the program's been a blessing to you. If so, we invite you to subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts and invite others to listen as well. I welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Don't miss the second part of the interview with missionary Mitchell Muller airing next time here on Great Commission Conversations. And until then, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. Mm-hmm.